What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Or as the New King James renders the passage, what God has joined, let not man separate. And as we have been noticing in a brief series of lessons along this theme, that statement was made by our Lord in the context of the marriage relationship. And indeed, that is a vitally important, absolutely crucial relationship, a God-ordained institution or relationship, the marriage relationship in the home. But we've been looking at that statement, what God has joined in other senses, what God has joined in relation to joining himself to this universe. The atheist seeks to separate God from his creation. The agnostic doubts his very existence. And yet the evidence cries out with a resounding God is. God has joined himself to this universe. That was the initial lesson that we studied. And we followed that with the fact that God, logically, who has joined himself to this universe, has joined himself to his word. And that would make sense if indeed we see something of the love and compassion of God in the physical creation, and we certainly do. The word good is used six times in the first chapter of Genesis, and the phrase very good is used in verse 31 of that same chapter. God looked upon all that he had created, and behold, it was very good. The goodness of God is seen to a great extent in creation, but the ultimate goodness of God is seen in revelation, in revealing his will to us. And the right-thinking individual should be looking for God's revelation of himself. And indeed, he finds it in the Bible. But we also see that in that word, God has joined himself to Jesus, as we looked at last time. And yet we live in a world where far too many separate God from Jesus and believe that there are many ways to God and that Jesus is not that only way. But Jesus himself affirmed, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. John 14, verse 6. But now this morning, I'd like for us to look at another thing about this theme, what God has joined, and that is that God has not only joined himself to Jesus, but that he has also joined Jesus to salvation. And I want us to see how he has done that. Has indeed God joined Jesus to salvation? Well, listen to the prophet Isaiah, the messianic prophet. In Isaiah seven fourteen, a very familiar prophecy, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Then when we read the gospel according to Matthew, we see an allusion to that prophecy of Isaiah in Matthew's inspired statement, where he writes, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, Matthew says, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. No question about the fact that Isaiah's prophecy referred to the Christ, and no doubt about the fact that Matthew said it was the Christ who was to be called Jesus, meaning Savior, because he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus, as he came into this world, as he grew into manhood, and as he began his earthly ministry, 
He himself declared that he had been joined to salvation and that only through him could salvation be accomplished. For in Luke 19.10, his words are recorded, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Peter declared in Acts 4 and verse 12 concerning the Christ, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Jesus himself through the apostle John in Revelation 2.10 spoke of the trials and the tests that were to come there upon some of the brethren. But he said, you'll be tested, you'll have tribulation ten days, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. I will give. Jesus will give us eternal life with him as our crown. The crown itself is eternal life. And the Hebrews writer in Hebrews 5, 8, and 9 says, Though he were a son, or though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The crown of life is given to all who are faithful unto death, to all who obey Him. And this tells us that to be saved eternally, we must obey. We must do something. We must come to the cross where Jesus died. Just recently, we had a brief series on that cross. And indeed, it is the case that God has joined Jesus to salvation through the cross. That's the means by which salvation is achieved through Jesus. Jesus himself, as he lived, predicted his own death upon Calvary and the sacrifice that he would make. He said in John 3, recorded there at verse 14, beginning, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that's the cross, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then that familiar statement, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. These words of Jesus take us back to an incident when he says, as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, takes us back to an incident in the Old Testament recorded in Numbers 21. You remember it? God's people in the wilderness murmured against Moses and God, and God sent poisonous serpents among them, and many of them died, and the people cried out for deliverance. And God instructed Moses to build that brazen serpent, and he instructed Moses to tell the people, when you look upon it, if you've been bitten, you will live. Jesus in John chapter 3 tells us this was a type, a foreshadowing of his being lifted up on the cross to bring deliverance from sin. And so we must look to him and we must look to the cross. In the series we presented recently on the cross, we mentioned that we are drawn to Calvary. Remember what Jesus said in John 12, 32, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. We are drawn to Calvary. We're drained at Calvary of self and filled with the Savior, and then we're driven from Calvary, as it were, to live a life dedicated to Him. And the message of the cross, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel is the good news of the cross that Jesus shed His blood to save all Mankind. Listen to Ephesians 2, 12 through 16. That at that time, writing to these Ephesians, these Gentiles, he says, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope 
and without God in the world. But now, two very important words, but now in Christ Jesus you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one, that's all mankind, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Listen to it. And that he might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, all mankind, to God in one body, that's the church, through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Now notice we're brought near by the blood of Christ. But notice also that both Jew and Gentile have been reconciled to God in one body through the cross. We'll talk about that one body, the Lord willing, tonight. By the blood of Christ we've been brought near, the blood that was shed on Calvary. But the question is, how are we saved by that blood? And that's where so, so much of the difference arises in the religious world. Oh, there are... Myriads of individuals this very morning who will tell you the cross is essential to our salvation and that without the cross there can be no salvation. But how are we saved by the blood that was shed there? Some of you were here and probably remember that, oh, it's been a few years ago now. I presented a lesson in which I used a simple analogy between salvation and a seatbelt to show how simple salvation is in Christ Jesus. Man has complicated it. Man has complicated it. But God simplified it. And it's not a complicated issue. I want to revisit that illustration for the remainder of our study on this subject this morning to remind us again of just how simple salvation is. In fact, I contend that salvation is the simplest subject in all of God's Word. I know that to be the case because I can read in 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4 that this is good, as Paul wrote, in the sight of God. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God's dream, if you will, is that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But how do we do that? Are we saved by the mere fact that Jesus shed his blood on Calvary? There are those who would contend that that would be the case. A universalist certainly would say that all are going to be saved. And there's no question about the fact that that Jesus had to shed his blood. There was no other way. Don't you think if there had been another way that indeed God would have implemented that way, that Jesus would have chosen another way? But he was the only perfect sacrifice that could become the propitiation, the atonement for our sins. But if we're saved by the mere fact that Jesus shed his blood, then universalism would be true. And yet... He had to shed that blood. Listen to Hebrews 9, 22. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. Then Hebrews 9, 13 and 14 says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who without spot offered himself to God, offered himself to God, 
cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who what? Who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse what? Your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The blood of Christ cleanses. The shedding of the blood was necessary to salvation. No other sacrifice was sufficient. Only the sinless Son of God could suffice. However, the shedding of the blood itself does not save from sin any more than this seatbelt I have saves in the event of an automobile accident simply because it exists. This came out of an automobile. This is not made of scotch tape. It is made of material that meets federal guidelines. It had to, in order to, at one time, be in the automobile that it was in. But is the fact that the seatbelt, manufactured according to federal standards and placed in that automobile, is the mere fact of its existence going to do anything for you or for me by the very fact that it's in the car and available to me? No, we know it's not. We know it's not. By the same token, the shedding of the blood of Christ cannot in any way save us by the mere fact that it was shed. Something else has to occur. Well, most people would say, well, we know that, preacher. We're not, many of us, universalists, and we know that, and we also know that it is by faith that we respond to the blood that was shed. It's by faith that we reach the cleansing blood. But this question, is it by faith alone that we reach that cleansing blood? That is the contention that dominates the religious world today, calling itself Christian, no question about it. That is the dominant position. But think about that in relation to the operation of the seatbelt. The seatbelt will not save me in the event of an accident simply because it's in the car. But what if I get into my car and my wife, who does know what I need to do, tells me, Jim, buckle up. And I say, I can't do that. And she asks, why can't you do that? And I say, because I have too much faith in the seatbelt in order to do that. And don't you understand that if I reach over and I put the seatbelt on, that I'm basically negating my faith in the seatbelt because I'm trying to work out my own salvation in the event of an accident? I believe too strongly in this seatbelt to do that. And what might she say? Let me drive. That's what she might say. <laughs> Let me drive. <laughs> Why? Because she would know that that makes no common sense. It's not logical. She would understand that the only way that I can show my faith in the seatbelt is by what? Using it. By putting it on. It still fits. <laughs> but I have to put it on. I have to put it on. And by putting it on, I demonstrate my faith in the seatbelt. In Galatians 3, 26 and 27, For you are all sons of God, Paul writes to the Galatians who were Christians, you are all sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were, what? Baptized into Christ did put on Christ. For as many of you as have 
buckled your seatbelt, you're in your seatbelt. Incidentally, this whole idea came to me years ago when I was traveling back into the state of Tennessee from the state of Mississippi, as I recall, and I saw a sign, and you still see them today, and that was many years ago. And the sign says, as you enter the state, Tennessee cares. Buckle up. State law. And I had to look at that sign for a long time to understand what it meant. Well, of course not. <laughs> I understood. Tennessee cares about my life. And because Tennessee cares about my life, Tennessee cares, buckle up. And if you think you have an option and still want to be obedient to the law, you do not. State law. What's the analogy? God cares. And God has said, buckle up to the blood of my only begotten son. And if you think there's another way, there isn't it. That's my law. That's my law. And I don't buckle to the blood or come into contact with that blood that brings about my salvation by faith alone any more than I am benefited from the use of a seatbelt by believing in it without putting it on. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so we see it's by obedient faith that I can benefit from the seatbelt. Why can we not see it's by obedient faith that I benefit from the blood of Jesus Christ? And that obedience, when I have put on that seatbelt, I have not in any way, I have not in any way taken anything away from the manufacturer's grace, if you will, in placing it there for my use. And the same is true about our manufacturer and his grace. I have not in any way denied his grace when I put on his son in baptism and reached that blood. In fact, I have appropriated or accepted that grace. You see, the manufacture of this seatbelt requires cooperation on our part to save us from injury or death in an accident. And that's exactly what God requires of us. Cooperation. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We've talked about that many times. But the next verse says, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations, and Noah what? Put on his seatbelt. <laughs> well, no. The equivalent, Noah walked with God. Noah responded by obedient faith, and thus God extended His grace to him. And that's still as true today as it was then, though the principle is never changing. The, the particulars have. We don't build arcs today, as we've said before, in order to appropriate the grace of God as Noah had to do, and had to do it just as God said to do it. But we are to respond to God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ in just the way He has said for us to do it. Otherwise, we do not receive His grace. I remember, I remember a van I had years ago, and it had a little sticker. It had a little sticker on the driver's windshield side and also on the passenger side, as I recall, and it was just a little picture of a seatbelt coming together as it were, they were coming together, and it said, Together we can save lives. 
And again, did I have to look at that for a long time to think, what are they trying to tell me? No, I knew immediately what they're trying to tell me. Put your seatbelt on and work with us and we'll save your life. But if you don't put it on, then it's out of our hands. That's what the manufacturer of that automobile was saying. That was the message. And our heavenly manufacturer says what? Together, we can save your soul. Together, we can save your soul. But if you will not cooperate with me, I will not save you by my grace alone, nor will I save you by my grace through faith alone that will not demonstrate itself by acting. And that's abundantly clear throughout Scripture. James 2, 19. Faith without works is what? Think about what James wrote. We've looked at it many times. James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe there's one God? You do well. That's all well and good. Even the demons believe and tremble. Even the demons have that kind of faith. Then verse 20. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And then verse 24 of James 2. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Oh, as I've said before, James, I wish we did. I wish this world did see it. I wish this religious world calling itself Christian did see it, but tragically for the most part they do not. And they still contend strongly that faith alone saves. God does not do it by grace alone. God does not do it by grace through faith alone. God does it by His grace through man's obedient faith. I must buckle up. I must buckle up or contact the blood of Jesus and I do that in the likeness of his death. John 19.34 says his blood was shed in his death. And when the soldier pierced his side as he had already died, and there came out blood and water, I must contact that blood in the likeness of that death. And Paul tells me clearly in Romans 6.3 and 4 what the likeness of that death is. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. The blood was shed in His death. I contact the blood in the likeness of His death, and that is baptism. To the Colossians who had done that, Paul wrote this, You were what, he says, buried with Him in baptism in which you also were raised with Him through faith and the working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made, listen to it, alive together with Him, having, looking back, forgiven you all trespasses. Where did He forgive you all trespasses? Perfect tense, back when you were buried with Him. What is that burial with Him? It is baptism. Paul tells those Christians at Colossae, that they had become Christians by being buried with Christ and raised with Him through baptism. And notice he says they were made alive together with Him. Where was Christ when He was made alive physically from the dead? He was not on the cross. He was in the tomb. Where are we made alive spiritually from our being dead in sins? In the tomb. What tomb? The watery tomb of baptism. And it's then and only then that were added to the church purchased with the blood of Christ, the church about which we'll speak tonight as we see that God has joined 
Jesus and salvation to the church, not just the cross, but also the church. Now let me ask you this. In reference to the analogy with the seatbelt, if the only way I can become buckled to that blood, as it were, is through obedience to the gospel by being baptized, preceded by faith, genuine repentance, and sweet confession of the name of Christ, and that is God's plan, if that's the only way I can do it, to become tied to that blood, contact that blood, buckle to that blood, as it were, and added to the church about which we'll speak more tonight, how do I stay buckled? How do I stay buckled? Well, as we've talked about many times, there are those who say, don't have to do anything. Once buckled, always buckled. Once saved, always saved, in other words. Well, think about that in relation to the seatbelt again. And again, I'm getting into the car. My wife is at my side. And I've been in the car many times and heard the admonition, buckle up, and I have complied once. And I remind her of that when she tells me again, you need to buckle up, Jim. And I say, you've forgotten, Janice. First time I ever got in this car, I buckled up. And that was it. Don't need to anymore. Don't you understand once buckled, always buckled? And what might she say? That's right, let me drive. Because she understands that buckling up is a continuing process. That to benefit from the seatbelt, I must continually use it. To benefit from the blood of Christ, I must continually claim it. How do I do that? John tells me, doesn't he? First John 1, 7 through 9. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses, keeps on cleansing us from our sin. If we say we have no sin, we, we deny. We're liars. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. Confess, keep on confessing. He's faithful and just to keep on forgiving and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, the blood of Christ keeps on cleansing as we what? Keep on walking. Just as I must keep on buckling up to benefit from the seatbelt, I must continue to claim the blood of Christ. How? By a righteous walk with Him. Not a sinless walk, that's an impossibility, but a righteous walk with Him and a regular confession of the sins I will inevitably commit despite my best efforts. And so, indeed, I must keep on buckling up. Now, a final question in relation to the analogy of the seatbelt to our salvation. And that question is this, when should I buckle up? When should I buckle up? Well, I'll tell you when I should buckle up and see if you agree. I'm out here on I-24 and I'm headed toward Nashville and I realize an 18-wheeler has just crossed the median coming toward me and he is about to hit me head on and it is then that I need to say I need to get my seatbelt on that is not the time it's too late then the time to put my seatbelt on is when I get in the car preferably even before I start the engine and put it on so that I am prepared and the time to buckle up to the blood is at the first opportunity that I have because 
and it's not a scare tactic, I have absolutely no assurance of another opportunity beyond the very one you have this very morning to either become a Christian or potentially to die without becoming a Christian. Because James says, what is your life? You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. He says, what is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. You need to respond to the gospel by believing in the Christ and repenting and confessing and being baptized. Now is the time. Now is the time. There may not be another. There's absolutely no doubt that God has joined Jesus to salvation through the cross. But we must understand the conditions set forth through the cross, and we have to meet those conditions as we have studied this morning. And when we do, the Lord adds us to the church that Jesus purchased with His blood. If you haven't undergone that process that adds you to that blessed, blood-bought body, we plead with you to do it. Do it now while you have time and opportunity. And if as a wayward child you need to come home, don't wait. Come home as we stand and as we sing.